Hey everyone, welcome to the Ambit Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Medan, and today, Zeka Len joins us to discuss his pre-seed VC firm, Responsibly Ventures, investing in climate startups. So first off, thank you, Zeka, for taking the time to hop on the podcast today. How are you doing? Seamus, I'm doing really well. You've got great energy. I'm ready to go. That's awesome. So first off, you are a former environmental economist and data scientist. Let's start off with what was the trigger point when you realized you want to make a difference in climate? Oh, that's awesome. I appreciate it. First and foremost, uh, I do want to be clear. I actually don't hold our fund out as a climate fund. We're a sustainability fund. Ah, gotcha. And many times climate is an aspect of that social impact, social good, sustainability. There are many overlaps between each deal. So um, I'll, I'll make that clear. We can go back to it. But to your question, really great qu- question. What kind of gave me that inspiration? I actually thought I wanted to be an environmental journalist. I have a very inquisitive mind. Uh, I just kind of want to learn things. Um, I'm open to a broad area of knowledge and, you know, take me down the rabbit hole. Um, so for me, I actually discovered environmental economics by accident. I was going to, I had to take a general university credit and it actually ended up taking microeconomics and I was sitting through the class and I found myself quite bored to be candid <laughs> because I didn't know anything about it. My math skills weren't that great. Um, I, I've told this on a podcast for us. So I actually don't mind telling it again. So here we were in the middle of class studying some topic on, you know, supply and demand curves. And I was looking in the book and um, while the lecturer was giving the, the teaching and I saw this list of macroeconomic policies that most economists agreed or disagreed with. And there was one that was at the top and it was called the negative income tax. And there was an individual, his name uh, was Milton Friedman, who was a monetarist. And I didn't know why the majority of economists agreed with this policy. And I found it quite fascinating. I just kind of was curious, what is this thing? And why why is it so disproportionate to all the other macroeconomic policies, top 10, top 20? So I went to the professor and I said, hey, you have to class, what is this? And you know, who's this Milton Friedman person? And they just lit up <laughs> and they spent a good two hours telling me everything about this policy and how it ties into what is today known as the um, universal basic income. Um, Milton Friedman was a very free thinker, uh, open uh, ideas. Um, he developed this with his wife, Rose um, uh, Friedman, back in the 1950s or 60s. And it's basically a very equitable, fair approach to distribution that which helps to stabilize the economy in theory. And then data science, that was a long path, but I kind of got there through multiple years, becoming a little bit of a self-taught programmer and a geek. And I ended up working in data science and media tech industry. And then I worked in a quantitative hedge fund type of environment and kind of went down that path for a while. One thing I picked up uh, on something you said that I've seen after I've talked to quite a lot of VCs, I've seen a pattern here is you mentioned you wanted to go into journalism. And I've seen quite a lot of VCs that actually start in journalism or get interested in journalism and then transition into venture capital. By being a successful journalist, you not only are able to tap into a pretty strong network and build that network up over time, but then once you do, that's an extremely helpful resource when you're a venture capital because now you have this strong network that you can use for deal flow and opportunities and et cetera. Absolutely. Great observation. I think, um, you know, following the footsteps of Jason Calacanis, he was trained as a journalist and also a psychologist. And, um, you know, for me, reading his book, Angel, was an impetus to break into the industry. I actually read that book and it really triggered me. I actually quit my job as a quantitative programmer, data scientist, and and I decided to become an angel investor. And back to your point again, 
that aspect of asking deeper questions, thinking critically is, is a craft, I think, in many ways uh, people overlook and how important it is in the process of synthesizing information in a very complex environment where there's a lot of disparate data points and asking things critically where there may be a very big gap in knowledge has been an important factor for me in, in developing uh, my process. Yeah, great point. And for any people wondering how you can ask those second and third level questions, a lot of people just scrape the surface or what I call level one. And the way you get to that level two or level three, you have to really listen to what the person's saying. And then you have to take bits and pieces that you can connect with and then ask questions off of that and go down. And the way you'll really notice if what you just asked was effective is one thing that I picked up is that they pause or they just think about it for a little bit before they mm. answer because they haven't yet answered that question before is something new. There, there are two things here. There's first principles thinking, which reminds me of that, but it also reminds me of a positive psychology intervention where one asks oneself, and this is kind of back to self-awareness and, and mindfulness. One asks oneself, if this is true, why is it important? So, you know, usually you're asking in the context of like, you know, uh, psychology toward yourself or, you know, uh, negativity or about a situation, but it, it's, it, it's a fascinating thought experiment to go down, like you say, level one, level two, level three, and dig deeper a little bit more. The trick in my mind is doing that in a way that doesn't offend someone or make them uncomfortable. Um, obviously everyone has their, their own agenda and they have their own limits and things like that. So I think empathy is very important as, as a venture capitalist and also as a founder, to be able to connect with people and understand delicately why that's something they're so passionate about. So I myself am an impact investor. People often ask, what is impact, right? We don't really know. I would say it's personal. And that's not actually not my idea. A podcast guest of mine gave me that sort of inspiration. Having said that, when I connect with founders, I always want to learn why is your team doing this? And why is this important? And it goes back to that layering of questioning in in that regard. And oftentimes they get kind of uncomfortable. There's another method I use where you kind of weigh and rank things for d- difficult decisions. But I, I ask founders, usually a couple meetings in, I'll ask them, so what are the top five potential positive impacts and the top five potential negative impacts of your business over the next five years? And usually they'll start right with the top, you know, hey, we're going to help this customer, this, and then they start going, huh. And they start thinking, and then they have to be intellectually honest with themselves and thinking out loud. And then it helps me uncover, again, they'll think of like, how authentic is this and why are they doing it? You know, have they thought through those different layers like you suggested? And it's a good tool. That's actually super interesting. That's the first time I've heard that because a lot of times VCs really want to see how big of an opportunity is this. They want to see all the positives listed out, but they don't really look at the negatives. Indeed. It makes a lot of founders really uncomfortable, you know, because it's almost like, hey, you're like insulting, you know, (laughs) our integrity, but it's really not that. And it's in a closed environment and I would never discuss that. And I really don't share it with my LPs or anything like that. It's just a process to get to know what's the authenticity of, of, of why they're doing this. And have they thought through a lot of those, hate to sound like too much of an economist, but those positive externalities and negative (laughs) externalities, it's important. It really is. Yeah, it's a great point. And going back to you being an angel investor, you've been an angel investor since 2019. And congrats on being in the top 1%. What made you want to start your own fund? And then what are some lessons that you learned while angel investing that you're applying to responsibly VC? Thank you. And I appreciate you. You have done your homework. That's that's tremendous. <laughs> um, to be very crystal clear, um, it is on paper with what we call TVPI and IRR 
which are um, both the gross unrealized returns and the unrealized multiple on the contribution, the investment, net of fees, et cetera. Uh, and weighing that against US VCs and other syndicates, about a 500 data set on AngelList, it came to my attention after doing this research, it took me about a week to find out, dig in and find all these valuations, et cetera, that it is performing among the top 1% of private capital, angel and syndicate and venture capital. So long story short there, I just want to be kind of crystal clear. I mean, it is on paper. Um, but to your question about angel investing, the similarity of how it ties into my current work, frankly, you know, when you're investing your own money as an angel investor, like I was doing for a few years and also as a scout, that's a little different, but as an angel, hypersensitive about every dollar where it goes. And what that does is it puts you into the mindset of being a little bit more diligent, a little bit more apprehensive, cautious, you know, asking the deeper questions. And that's helped me, uh, frankly, as a venture capitalist, starting from that point of kind of asking myself, what are the BS points here in my own thinking process? And that just translates into a, more of a fiduciary mindset, I believe. Of course, as venture capitalists, I'm also investing or general partner, I'm also investing into our fund as well. And what that does is it aligns the, the economic incentives between me as the manager, general partner, and then the fund itself. So I am aligned with the economics, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And being an angel investor for a couple of years now, you've obviously seen some companies fail through that as private markets are a lot more risky than being in the public markets. But what are some of the things that you've seen uh, in the private markets as an angel investor that you're applying to responsibly VC? Oh, that's so awesome. It was, your questions are stellar. And I know you haven't written any of these down, so, but I can tell you're really <laughs> thinking through it. Great, great job. You're, you're a Appreciate natural. I, I, now I know why Chris Chris Ye has uh, promoted you and works <laughs> with you. I can definitely see this. Okay. So uh, first and foremost, I will toot my own horn for a moment and say that I think in my own portfolio, only one company has... I wouldn't, they haven't actually gone bankrupt. They haven't actually closed down, but the founder had a circumstance. So out of the whole portfolio, I've seen one down round and that's a down round is when the valuation is less than a previous round. You know, it's not a good sign as you know. So, so that those sound bad, but actually uh, given that there have been only two out of say 40 investments, that's actually very, very good. And that's intentional. So I really try to take the mindset of a value investor when I apply the principles of investing to venture capital. And that's very challenging in the earliest of stage because things are all over the place. And just to give you some clear statistics, around 66% of seed-based investments over the last 20 years will return a 1x or less. And around 33% of those investments will fail. If you look at from the pre-seed round where we invest as a fund, you know, sub 10 million cap valuations, the likelihood of a failure rate goes up probably to around 50% for the, you know, the the to zeros. In my own angel portfolio, I've seen healthy up rounds for the majority of the companies, which is really nice. And I think it goes back to being disciplined. It goes back to looking at the fundamentals. You know, how big is this market? What is the competitive advantage? Why this team? Why now? You know, for, for me, the, the competitive edge is always how much do I understand about sustainability and impact. How, do, how can that drive scale and drive returns? So I look at not only reducing the failure rate as much as possible, but also just maximizing returns with uh, any sort of venture portfolio. Having said that, a lot of people get confused. They're like, okay, well, what about the unicorns, right? 
So I've had two companies that are, uh, one is, I believe a Sunicorn. I can't announce that yet. Actually Grin is one I can announce. They're probably past their unicorn status. They were at 900 million. And then there's another, I can't announce, but there is another two or three plus on the way in terms of their, their speed and, you know, cadence, et cetera. But from a portfolio management standpoint, and I know I'm oversharing here, but who cares, right? <laughs> <Just do this. laughs> from a portfolio management standpoint, I think failure rates matter. And I think that as a manager of a portfolio, I want to see not only failure rates being low, but not sacrificing on the potential for that massive upside. Those are some great points. And for example, like I was reading uh, the book, uh, Secrets of Sand Hill Road. Love that book. The other day. Yeah, it's a Scott, great Scott venture. Kapoor? Yeah, that's it. So it's a great VC book. And one of the things that I've picked up on when I was reading it is the point on batting average, where VCs are always trying to hit the home runs, right? The unicorns, right. the decacorns. So what are some of the things that you've noticed that contribute to failed companies than you don't see in the successful companies? Well, there's a lot of talk about this, and pretty much everyone's talking about this right now. You know, FOMO rounds led by Silicon Valley insiders, uncapped notes for, you know, top tier funds and things like this. <laughs> Everybody makes good on paper, it's easy to raise funds, all those things, but discipline matters and value matters. And we're seeing that right now as things play out. So my own portfolio, I'm sitting really happily, you know, but I know a lot of others are losing 50% off the top more, you know, and uh, it's really sad because a lot of these founders, they get into that state of perhaps not having discipline about, you know, allocating their own capital for the, the appropriate things, you know, instead of the Maserati and the weekends in the Bahamas or whatever, <laughs> you know, I, I don't see that happening a lot, but you know, I know these things do happen. And I just, I like to uh, encourage people to be a little bit more prudent, candidly. And I'm going to pull up this uh, chart real quick. It's a chart by Carta that really shows the difference in the average amount raised for Series A, Series B, and Series yeah. C. And we're noticing that real recently, we're seeing the average, for example, Series A being down 29%, and then Series B, 26 and then Series C, down 23 um, So your firm, Responsibly VC, currently invests in pre-seed stage rounds. We're right. eventually going to see that trickle down into their earlier stage rounds. And if that That's does the happen... Narrative. That's yeah, and if that does happen, we haven't seen that in the last year, though. So it's hard. I mean, people say that, but you know, we're probably going to see something of a little bit uh, less pricing. I agree, but it's more so in the late stage rounds, in my opinion. And even so, we're less sensitive to valuation because of this. I mean, if we're shooting for a unicorn, you're talking five million versus seven million. At the end of the day, how much should that matter? That's the open question. Gotcha. And why don't you think it will trickle down into the earlier stages? Well, I think what will happen is that, you know, funding cycles will stretch out a little bit. How many months of runway do you need in terms of getting the round closed, things like that? The valuations themselves, I think it's significant, but it's not, I think it's more important, you know, how many capital riders are there for you to follow on with? And to my understanding, a lot of these funds do still have a lot of capital available, you know, for the next couple few plus years. So I feel we're positioned really well. And, you know, in terms of the short reward, you know, if the valuations come down, that's kind of dollar cost averaging. Yes, it matters. But at the end of the day, what really matters in my view is how big is the market? How many competitors are here right now? And can you get access to capital as you move up? I mean, if you're a series A company or series, like even like a seed plus company right now, maybe I'd be feeling a little bit more nervous, but you know, I know I'm tooting my own horn here, but I think it, there's never been a better time to be in at pre-seed in my opinion. 
And then what's your advice to founders who are in those later stage rounds? What's your advice to them uh, running their company during this economy? You know, I'm very hesitant to give advice. I know those sound, sounded like strong opinions. <laughs> no, sorry, I totally Scott. agree. I, I apologize. Totally. <laughs> Scott Kapoor, if you're listening, <laughs> strong opinions, loosely <laughs> held. <laughs> uh, I, I've feedback uh, so to the later later stage companies. I mean, it's going to be challenging in my view if you if they don't have the revenue to match and there already is a Series B. And let's say that this like the SPAC window is a little bit kind of ugly right now to my understanding in terms of some of the changes that were recently made. There was a paper from uh, Goldman Sachs, some commentary on this. It's a little bit challenging on, on the SPAC window. I think there are some constraints there in terms of like extra costs and or risks. But for those going for an IPO, I truly don't know what to say about that. Could be ugly. You know, there could be some strong layoffs. I was listening to Jason Calacanis last night on, he was speaking with Molly Wood on their session last night. And they were talking about the types of things, if I can get this, I'm hopefully I don't paraphrase this incorrectly. They were talking <laughs> about the types of things that founders should be paying attention to in that down cycle. And largely what he was suggesting, Jason was suggesting about marketing costs and advertising costs sh- shouldn't be the thing to be cut. And what he said instead was that some of the markets have less traction, should be taken off the table for those late stage companies and or potentially you know operational roles, things like that. And really trying to kind of cut down on extraneous overhead, like you know conferences and things, things like that. So I think cutting costs is one, but also I don't know if the like the benchmark for the ARR, let's say, has really changed that much. I mean, a year and a half ago at Series A, a lot of a lot of us were talking about like you need to hit the one one point five ARR to cr- cross through a Series A. But now, you know, it's hard to say what's what. Like no one's really talking about that yet. That those later stage funds have not sent sent those signals to the broader market, in my view. So I'm guessing that you know like a series B 10 million ARR would be like a safe bet, but it's hard to say, you know, I really don't know. Yeah, you made an excellent point, especially with the marketing and advertising costs. I think one of the things founders shouldn't necessarily do is start decreasing those marketing advertising costs and trying to time the consumer market on when they should start growing again. Mm. It just shouldn't really work that way. But your point on uh, decreasing your burn definitely makes a lot of sense. We see the last real, quote unquote, real recession from like 2007, 2008 lasted 18 months. I think if we see another recession, founders should at least be prepared to at least have 24 months of runway. That way they can get through that recession and come out on the other end. Yeah. Again, I don't want to give too strong of an opinion here. I actually, this is a little bit of my style because I I never raised venture capital before. I never scaled a venture business. So I'm I'm very hesitant to give any advice there. So I'll usually missteer someone. Instead, what I do is I turn it around on the crowd. And usually I'll ask the founders and investors, I could put out a poll yesterday that asks, months of runway and early stage startup should have right now after closing around. 40 votes on this so far, 15% say 12 months. 50% 50% say 18 months, 27.5% say 24 months. And there are only a couple of votes that said, you know, show, show me the money. <laughs> so I always like that. So right now it seems as though the market's suggesting, and this could be skewed by my audience. So all the rest, I asked people to retweet it for better statistics, but um, it seems as though somewhere between- Just retweeted 18, it by the way. <laughs> mo- say, are you just it? You're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> this is fun. This is, this is <laughs> Hopefully yeah, I'll be a regular guest and I can give- Oh yeah, I would love to have you back on. It's a great conversation Thanks. so far. So I, I don't know if that's useful. I mean, yeah, something around, you know, the 18 plus months. I mean, usually it, it seed, pre-seed, a lot of people suggested the last two years, you know, 12 to 18 months at close is a good kind of 
rule of thumb. It seems as though that's been pushed out more or less in terms of the narrative to what I understand it, maybe another you know, six months or something like that. There's a great documentary called um, Something Ventured. I don't know if you've ever watched it. You can find it on YouTube. It's an old school video about Silicon Valley, the origins of uh, Kleiner Perkins and and um, Sequoia, et cetera. Mm-hmm. There's a quote in that film that which has really resonated with me. And that quote, I can't remember the name of a person. I can actually search this as we say it, but the quote is, there are no rules in venture except that there are no rules. And that's the hard part about the job there has to be room for exceptions. And if there's not, I think you create more failure points. And that's tough because founders probably want to hear the narratives like how many months, be specific. But you know, candidly, it, it all really depends. And I know that's kind of a cop-out answer as well, but it's also important to keep a frame of reference. The founders themselves have, have to really decide what's what's real and what's not and stick to it, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you made a great point. I think we're definitely going to see some more variability and not everything's uh, going to remain the same. There's going to be some changes uh, over time. One other question I had here is, as we're talking, what are some of the things that when you're investing in responsible startups, what are some of the things that you look for in the founders and the team? Well, I hate to use this buzzword, but ethics. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, ethics is almost as ambiguous as truth, but they're still very important concepts. So if you have a highly ethical team that's dedicated to a particular, and I also don't like using this word too much, but dedicated to a particular cause, they'll usually find any way they can serve the market if that's a real problem. So the question, is it a real problem? So um, really looking for real problems that can scale where we're talking about human suffering or we're talking about health or we're talking about planetary survival in the case of climate tech, there may be that problem, but the the timing may not be right. And so then I my job is to kind of pull it all together and figure out, does this make sense in terms of can this real problem be tackled? <laughs> Losing money in the stock market, for example, somebody made a joke about that the other day. <laughs> That's fascinating. And to wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways on founders that want to create sustainable companies to help the environment? Okay. Yeah. I would say start early and I would say just communicate with your team and also align with investors like myself who can help in in regards to giving feedback and helping with the right network, et cetera. I mean, really, I guess the, the takeaway I'd say is surround yourself with good people who want to do good things. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Simple, but powerful. <laughs> and customers too. Customers really want to do good things. I mean, think about the synergy that happens when you have all of those components together. Yeah, that's a great point. I think actually, I, I don't have the statistics right off the top of my head, but there have been whole companies that uh, receive millions of dollars in valuations just because the customer base is willing to pay for something that's just good for the environment. And people actually pay a premium. For example, I think yeah, one of the top uh, issues with Gen Z and millennials is climate change, and people will pay a premium to help solve that problem. 18 to 36% on CPG to last count. I think the the highest quote was in um, Speed and Scale by John Dewar. The, his gotcha. book, I'm reading that right now. That was a quote they did in their research. I've seen it elsewhere, 18 to 36% on CPG. That's a great statistic. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. First off, if you enjoyed the episode, make sure to drop a five-star review down below. And thank you, Zeka, for taking the time to hop on the podcast today. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you, Seamus. You're a tremendous host. Thank you again. Appreciate it.